And uh, let's uh, turn in our Bibles, firstly, to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in this uh, series called The Dearest Place on Earth, this uh, four-part series in the doctrine of the church. Uh, we are uh, looking at the second uh, part of that series, Why Join a Church? And we're going to look at two key passages today, one that's just been read to us from uh, 1 Corinthians 12, but this, uh, a couple from Ephesians 1 as well. And uh, if you're, as you're turning there, let me just lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, to uh, come to your word is a gift. Uh, for we know that you have said that you would be known primarily not by sight but by sound through the reading and the hearing of your words, uh, read and declared. And indeed, you invite us to recognize that discernment is needed in what is said, uh, not to be uh, people of gullibility drinking down everything that somebody like me says, but to be like the Bereans in Acts 17 and taking what has been said away and uh, assessing it uh, in accordance with the scriptures and subjecting it to the scrutiny that you provide in your words, this holy, inerrant, and pure word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, 1630, a long time ago, a man called John Winthrop stood aboard the door of a ship called the Arabella as it sailed from England to America for people who were going to start a new life. Winthrop became the governor of a new colony not far from Boston, and he had this great vision for a new society. And as he stood aboard this ship, this is what he declared to all those hundreds gathered there. He said, we must knit together as one man. We must entertain each other in brotherly affection. We must delight in each other, make each other's conditions our own, rejoice together, mourn together, labor and suffer together, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work as members of the same body. What a vision for a society that is, clearly much more uh, Christian than secular. But nearly 300 years later, in, that, uh, in uh, the nation uh, of the United States, presidential candidate Herbert Hoover, Hoover, Hoover stood at a podium in Madison Square Garden, New York, outlining the vision for the society he wanted to see. It was a call to what became known as rugged individualism, an every man for himself kind of idea. So, um, uh, a kind of society where you're self-made and free. Now, I know it's talking about society, but the main point of it was that it's, we were to be independent, free from needing anyone else, and that people who belong to it should be self-sufficient, able to make it on their own, and free, free from any responsibility for others. And like it or not, uh, rugged individualism prevailed, and not just in the US, but in the West, and not just in society, but in churches. Many so-called believers are so very uh, every man for himself that they never really think about what it means to join a local church. We live in a very flighty and non-committal age where people like to keep their options open. And Christians today are kind of increasingly or naturally inclined to they're not inclined to find a place to put down roots and make long-standing, objective commitments for the good of others. 
We're the kind of people at times who like to keep our options open. And above all, to preserve our own freedom of choice. Rather than make a commitment or a covenant even for the long haul and embrace a framework for real life in all its ups and downs, like a family life. And church, to some, can become an event to attend, not a people to love. So they attend for years without linking in. Or church is for entertainment, not for gospel partnership. And when people think of church, they think, what's in it for me, rather than how can I link arms with others in service of Christ? Now, many of those who do join are still hindered by this kind of individualism. We keep each other at arm's length. We deny one another the true fellowship of the gospel that the New Testament outlines for us as typical. We do faith on our own, failing to see how absolutely vital it is to have other people help us and shape us in our sanctification. And we let, or we let everyone else do the work and deny the whole church the power of collective effort and mission through the employment of the gifts that Jesus in his grace has given us. Now, why is that? What do we put those things down to? I've already mentioned influence from the outside, but it may well be that actually we haven't paused to think enough about this, so maybe that we just haven't been taught but it may well be that we just don't want to or we don't like the thought of the commitment. And this is one of the reasons why we're looking at this in our series on the church. We need to remind ourselves what a church is and why we should join one. We need to remind ourselves, even as brothers and sisters gathered here, of what a church is and why we're delighted to be a part of this church family and what it means. It's more than valuable. Valuable is a pitiful word to use to describe our life together. Now, last week, we sought to answer the question, what is a church? And the long, drawn-out answer is, according to Jesus, it was the invisible and heavenly assembly of all God's holy people from every time and place in heaven, manifestly visible in local assemblies of confessors like us, confessing Jesus as Lord and living as such, okay? Now, today, we're asking, well, why join a church like that? And while you won't find the word membership in the Bible, I want to show you today how the New Testament clearly assumes it. Not just in the very obvious instructions given by Christ and the apostles, but even in the pictures that they paint, the metaphors that they use. And one of the most well-known of those metaphors, metaphors for the church used in Scripture is that of the body, the body of Christ. And I hope I can show you today from God's word that when you grasp the meaning of this metaphor, it really leaves us in no doubt as to why we're really, really happy to be members of a church. Or if we're not yet, why we should join one. Now I'm going to answer the question, why join the church, in two points. The first is to honor Christ as our head. To honor Christ as our head. So let's look at this book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, verses 22 to 23 in particular, okay? The Apostle Paul uses this body metaphor really four times in, the new in his letters. In Ephesians, Colossians, in particular, Paul likens the church to a body, 
but specifically to say something about that church's relationship with its head, Jesus Christ, okay? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the church's head. Uh, and what's significant about that, about what Paul says regarding the church's relationship to its head? Well, there are two things that we find. First of all, authority. Jesus' headship conveys authority. Look with me at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1. God has placed all things under his, that is Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. Now, I want you to think about that verse, first of all, in very positional terms. Where are the different people situated? Okay, where, where are all things, if you like? They are under the feet of Christ, which is just a positional way of communicating the theological point that everything is under his rule, his sovereignty. But he's not just sovereign over anything, everything. He's sovereign for a specific purpose. He's ruling all things with something very precious in mind. And that text says it's his church. Now, that's a stunning thing to say. He is head over everything for the church. And positionally, what is the church in relation to Christ? Well, it is his body. To be ruled and governed by him who is our head. And it's really not difficult at all to see what that means for us. It's, I mean, in the first century, of course, and today, anatomists and physiologists will tell you that the head is the control center for the body. The brain controls the activities of the body, including digestion, drinking, sleep, cycles, uh, temperature, blood pressure, and more. And without such simple controls, the body doesn't work. In the same way, Christ, the head, controls the activity of his body, the church, and all it does, including preaching, the practice of the ordinances, the mission of that church, and so on. Now, what does that mean simply for every member of the body of Christ, universal, that is, to have him as our head? What does it require of us, the members of his body? Well, the answer is submission. Submission to his authority, obedience to his commands, and the facing up to the fact that we're not independent, self-sufficient, and free as some in society would like to propose. We're under authority. Now, I get it. Submission can often sound like an, an off-putting thing to people in our day and age when authority can be viewed with suspicion. But the good news is that Christ's authority, Christ's headship over us, isn't oppressive. It's actually humble and it's loving, meaning that submitting isn't something to avoid but to welcome. It's not something that's bad for us. It's actually for our greatest good. Now, Ephesians 5, if you flick over the page, actually talks about this uh, in verses 22 to 25. Look with me, verse 22, as Paul is for Ephesians 5, 22 to 25 basically tells us that Christ loves the church of which he is the head, okay? Now, verse 22, Paul is addressing the subject of marriage, and he says, wives, submit to your husband, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
So what specifically does, the, does Christ's headship convey in this passage? Authority, yes. But what kind of authority? Loving. It's heartfelt. It's more than heartfelt. It's fundamentally sacrificial. It's a saving love, we're told. It's a sacrificial love. It's a, I'm going to lay my entire life down for you kind of love. That's the kind of love that defines the authority that Christ, our head, has over us, his church. So therefore, how should his body, the church, relate to him? By submitting. It's dead simple. It's right there in black and white in verse 24. As the church submits. And that's what's expected of the members of his body. Which is what makes this a challenge to any who would call themselves Christian but think that they can disregard the teaching of Christ concerning his church and their involvement in it. I mean, we don't get to pick and choose what aspects of the membership of his body that we take or leave. This isn't a pick and mix. There aren't a bundle of different options and you can say, I'm going to go for the less expensive one, like you do with Virgin Media or something like that. I'm going to do that with church. I'm going to take the medium church package. No, you don't get to do that because you're not in charge. <laughs> you don't get to see what it looks like to belong to a local church. It's the full package. And Christ says so. So take care not to refuse any of Christ's instructions about membership of the body life of his church. In many respects, it may well be disobedience. We must check that. We must all check that. Membership in local church and doing what he calls us to do is actually just the necessary and the happy expression of our love for him and the reciprocation of our affection for him and the appreciation of all that he's laid down for us so that we might lay down whatever else we've got in our minds and in our hearts for him. After all, we're told you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Well, it's a necessary expression of one's obedience to Christ, our head, and the natural expression of one's membership in his body to obey. As Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. Do you love the Lord Jesus, friends? Now, if you're here today, you're not a Christian, you might think, this is all sounding very weird already. That's okay. It often does when you first hear things like this. But I think it, this, this passage actually helps you understand something about who Jesus is and about how, who you are in relation to him as well. You know, if you're not a believer, this might help you, this kind of stuff here helps you understand why life might feel to you like it's so disjointed sometimes, dysfunctional, like something's not right. And ultimately, the Christian answer to that is, the Bible's answer to that is, it's not. It's not right. Not without Christ. Because he rules over all. We're all made to live in relationship with him. Now, God made you to know and love him. But our lives of self-sufficiency make us, millions like us, see no need for him. And people like us spurn his love and slap away his hand in rebellion. Say, we don't want your authority, your rule. We prefer to be independent, self-sufficient, and free. I'm seated on the throne of my own heart, in other words. 
But what we don't realize when we do that is that we're not free. The Bible actually says we're slaves to sin. And that's a good way that describes our experience to do, you know, it describes our experience in general in life. So why do you keep doing the things that you do that make you feel guilty, even though in your heart of hearts you'd really like to stop doing it? It's because you can't stop doing it. It's because you're enslaved to your sinful nature. You're unable not to sin, to do wrong, not even in your eyes, but especially in the eyes and in the obedient, in the eyes and in uh, sight of the law of God. And though we deserve judgment for these things, God extends grace. He sent his son in love to save people like us from our sins, to forgive us for our rebellion, for all the times we've slapped away his hand and defied his authority and rebelled against his word and said, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Don't you tell me what to do. And he forgave us. And he helped us to see that there is no better place to be and no other way to find true joy in life than in vital connection to Christ our head, to whom we who see with his help our sinfulness for what it is, and his death and his resurrection from the dead as the only hope and only answer for those things. Unless we see that, we have no hope, but by seeing that and confessing that, well, we have eternal hope in him. Salvation. How do you receive that? Through faith and repentance. You don't need to work your way up to that. You don't need to dust yourself off or kind of get yourself ready for, to meet with him like it's all up to you. It's not. If it were up to you, you'd be a mess forever. But he robes you in his righteousness. He gives you what you need. And by turning from sin, and trusting in him, uh, you too can be a part of his church, the body of Christ. Come and talk to us about it afterwards. I'll be at the door, be glad to chat to you about this. Ask the person who brought you, or someone who looks like they've been here for ages, whatever that looks like. <laughs> to do so, though, isn't just to recognize God's great authority, but actually it's to look to him for his provision, which is the second aspect of this first point. If you go back to chapter 4 and verse 16 of the book of Ephesians, it tells us again that Christ is the head of his church. Okay, Paul is very, very keen to underline this all the way through. Uh, verse 15, sorry. We read that speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ, just to be clear, from him... The whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Now, what is that? What does Christ's headship convey to us in this instance? Well, in chapter 1, the head was the control center, but in chapter 4 here, the head is the feeder. It's the provider, the nourisher of the body. So the head not only houses the brain that's mindful of the body's need for food, it contains the vital orifice by which that food gets into the body. You're getting a lesson in anatomy and physiology this morning as well. And that's what Paul seems to have in mind here. And again, we understand this, whether we're studying anatomy and physiology today or whether you look at accounts for it back in the first century in the Greco-Roman world. 
Everybody sees this. Nourishment is vital for the growth and development of a physical body. And growth is exactly the thing that Paul has in mind here in relation to the church. He wants it to grow, develop, mature. Of course, he wants it to be like Jesus. Now, it's as if he's saying Jesus, our head, is mindful of our need and is the source of ours, the church's spiritual nourishment, which is the food that we need for growing into his likeness. And where do we get that? Well, the answer's in the text right there in verse 11. It's in the word of God. It's taught by teachers that Christ himself gave as gifts, word speakers to the life of the church. But verse 16 reminds us that through, though their work is vital, so is the part that every member plays in nourishing the members. Every member does its part by passing on the nourishment that comes through the mouth of Christ and into his body. I thought about an illustration midweek about the way that birds kind of eat stuff and get some benefit from it and then regurgitate stuff and then feed it to their kids, but I thought that would just gross you out, so I'll not use that one. But just as the good stuff that we eat somehow becomes useful to the different parts of the body, not just the esophagus or your belly, but like to your fingers, to your cells, even to the very cellular level through diffusion, and osmosis, so the word of God that comes to us and is redistributed between us as we speak the word of God to one another, we grow. We're nourished. We're fed. And that's why it's important not just to join a church, but be an active part of one another's lives for our nourishment, for growth and maturity actually involved in one another's lives. Like, I hope it's clear from the 13 years that I've been here that preaching is very, very important. This church family knows this, but it's not the only thing we need. We do need it, but we need each other. We need to be involved, whether it's through a formal thing like growth groups or yak or something like that, or whether it's through two or three friends getting together to read the Bible and pray for each other with with discipleship is key. It's important. That's the kind of thing that makes us grow up into him who is our head and acknowledges as members of his church his kind provision. Now that's the first thing. That's the first answer to our question, why join a church? It's this, to honor Christ as the head of his body and our membership of it. And the second reason is why we should join a local church is implied in the body imagery used by Paul in 1 Corinthians, the other passage that we read from earlier in our service, it's to honor his body as a member of it. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now, interestingly, Paul uses this same metaphor of the body, uh, but he uses it in a different way. He uses it in exactly the same way that he uses it in Romans, but it's to teach a different lesson about the headship and the relationship to the body. In Ephesians, he used it to teach who we are in relation to Christ, who is our head. But here he uses it to teach us as to how we ought to relate to one another as part of his body. So let me draw two key things out from this passage. The first being that church membership is a vital means of expressing our unity. Now, what is, this, what is it that unites us? Verse 3 um, of that passage tells us that it's our baptism. Not water baptism, Spirit baptism, for we were all baptized by one spirit 
so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. So Paul's kind of talking in kind of universal church terms again, all people everywhere at all times. But then he roots it and grounds it in local church practical instruction, okay? The heavenly assembly has a local expression, okay? Now, baptism in the spirit in this text is just another way of talking about conversion. It's not some different experience that somebody needs to go through to become a proper Christian. That's wrong. This is just conversion about becoming a Christian. And to be baptized in the spirit, to be immersed in the spirit, is to be plunged into an understanding of the gospel, submerged under the overflowing love of God. And Paul says, when that happens, you're part of the body of Christ universal. And the way that you express or indicate that is being baptized in water in a local church membership. That's next week that we're going to look at that. Why get baptized? So when we join a church, we say, I'm a member of Christ's body now. Verse 12 tells us, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all are members of his body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For, verse 14, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. See what he's trying to do here? Your membership in Christ is expressed in membership with one another. Physical, tangible expressions of the life of Christ together lived out among his people. Which means that Lone Ranger Christians, those who say, oh, I can belong to the local church without needing to join a local church, are in error. A member without attachment to the body can die. A sheep without the protection of the flock is prey. A brick apart from the temple of the Lord is a brick. And verses 12 to 14 strongly imply then the necessity of belonging as an expression of our unity. But verses 15 to 27, the rest of that passage, tell us that church membership is actually a means of expressing our interdependency, our need of each other, our participation in one another's lives. So verses 15 to 27 tell us that we not only need our head, we need each other to be what Christ wants us to be and do what Christ instructs us to do on earth. What does he want us to be? A church. That's what he defines us as. An embassy, an outpost of his heavenly kingdom here on earth. What does he want us to do in this kind of geographical spot in which we meet? To be his church when we gather. It is to make and mature disciples of Christ by proclaiming the word of God, by practicing the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper, and by being on mission together. Those are all subtopics within this very letter to the church in Corinth. The problem in Corinth, of course, if you've read the letter before, you'll know, is that it's confused and it's divided. And as Paul corrects the error in their thinking, he informs our understanding of what a church is and the need for belonging in it. And he does so by employing this body metaphor to illustrate their need of each other. So just as one part of a human body needs another part in order to function, so we depend on each other to be what Christ has called us to be, a body. Verses 15 to 20 specifically address those who say, I'm not needed. I don't need to be a part of this body. And verses 21 to 26 of 1 Corinthians 12 address those who, like in Corinth, in their pride are pointing to other parts of the body that they look down on and say, you're not needed. We don't need you. You're a bit less presentable to us. 
But the main point is that every single member is needed. Even the bits that might seem through an erroneous perception are use, that might seem useless or unpresentable. Every single part has a mutual and a meaningful and a vital and a necessary part to play in the body life of a local church, or else it just doesn't work. Now, verses 18 and verses 24 of this passage, 1 Corinthians 12, are crucial to understanding it. Together, they reinforce the argument that local church membership is actually God's arrangement. Verse 18, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. Verse 24, God has put this body together, and then verse 25b, so that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. See what it's saying in those two verses, those two sections? It's saying, in local church membership, we say to one another, we will work together the same way that a body works together. To work as the head directs. Like, why is the body metaphor chosen? God intends for us to understand that Christ is working out his purposes on earth through his body, not by any other means. He has chosen to work through his body, and whether I'm a finger or an eye or a kidney or an elbow, I know that I can't do this without everyone else that God has arranged to be here in membership with me. That's verse 18. But verses 24 to 26 reinforce the fact that our membership is just not just about function, but about feeling. There's love in it, heart in it, as you would expect. Because to be a member of a church isn't about duty, it's about delight. The God of love who saves in love, a people he loves, gathers them into a church he loves and says, love one another as I have loved you. It's dead simple. True concern for each other, whether that makes you cry with those who are crying or shout yes with those who rejoice. It's just not possible in a community that one chooses, that no one chooses to belong to. And these kind of instructions, I hope you understand, it's, it, these cannot exist in some haphazard chance contact with other members of the universal church that you might bump into in various geographical points across the world at various times. No, it, it exists, it's formal, it's regular, in other words. It happens in the life of a local church where not just names, but stories are known. It exists in a church family like this where the mission is clear and the thinking and the philosophy of ministry is all joined up and people are like, yes, I'm in. Or when you hear about the death of a sister like Evelyn Sangster and our hearts break and immediately we pray for our family. Or we meet together like we will tonight at 6.15 and we hear people express with deep, deep sorrow the concerns they have over loved ones who, have, who do not know the Lord, and we cry with them. That's what it means. That's what our membership involves. Not just function and doing, using the gifts that Christ has given us, but feeling, loving. Now, I love the people up at Chalmers Church. 
I'm very glad I've got brothers and sisters in Central Baptist Church in Dundee. But I can't obey these commands of Christ with them. Because I'm not vitally connected to them or in partnership, committed partnership with them in the life of a local church. We need a local church context in order to obey Christ our head, to honor him as that, and to be the body that he has called us to be. So yeah, you're right. You can say to me afterwards, Liam, there's no mention of the word membership in any of those passages. Technically, it says member. But you're right. There isn't. It's implied. The answer to that question, why join a church? I hope you can see, even from this one metaphor of the body, is much more complex than for me to say, turn to this chapter and verse and read it here, one verse. It doesn't work that way. But it's there. And it's meaningful. It matters. So how do we apply this? Brothers and sisters, I really want you to realize that many of us should be really encouraged. I'm very conscious that I'm speaking to the majority of people here who are committed members of the life of Charlotte Chapel. You're members of this local church that gathers here in this building. That's a wonderful thing. We're loving God and each other. We're working hard, many of us, not to keep each other at arm's length, but are invested in one another's lives and aiming for Christ's likeness, seeking to care for each other personally and practically with exuberant expressions of love, and that is wonderful. You're serving with the gifts that God has given you. You're on mission together to make disciples, and whether you're doing that at an event, like a carol service at Christmas, or just having some, another couple of members of the church at your dinner table on a Friday night when you've got other non-Christian friends coming along to build some relationship with them, it's glorious. Many of us should be encouraged. But it could well be that, carrying the body analogy that little bit further, that some of us are a little bit sleepy in our membership. I guess, I was trying to think of the best way to describe this, and this isn't the best way to describe this, but I'll go for it anyway. You're like an, we're like an arm that's been slept on overnight. Do you know what I mean? It's like it, it has no feeling, and it doesn't do what the head tells it to do. Right? You've slept on it, and you're like, I really need to move this arm. <laughs> and you end up having to use your other arm to kind of get it out of the way. Well, if that's any of us, it may be time to just give ourselves a shake. Let's get the love of Christ circulating in those blood vessels again and function as we're meant to function as useful parts of the body. The whole body needs that. Maybe some of us, though, are in danger for whatever reason. And I'm, be, I'm, I'm trying to understand it could very well be for personal doubt Okay, you're not sure you believe the stuff that's in here anymore. Or it could be out of, out of heart, right? We're all sinners, even though we're members of the church, we still sin against each other. It may well be that you've been hurt in some particular way to the extent that whether through doubt or hurt or something else, you're thinking of dismembering yourself from the life of the church. Or not that bo and not that bothered about joining another church. Well, what happens to dismembered parts of the body? They go necrotic, which is just the medical way of saying they shrivel up and die and there is no life in them. That is 
the danger. But some of us, lastly, are prey. Because if we haven't yet joined the church, then we don't have elders who have any responsibility for us before God. And the members can't be expected to pursue you in discipline if you fall into sin or pursue you in love to spur you on towards loving good deeds if you're not happily saying, I identify with you, I'm with you, part of this body. We as a membership are responsible before God for those who covenant together. And as I said earlier, sheep without a flock are prey. So care needs to be taken. And my encouragement for you is to join. And if for some reason, there's, and there are plenty of reasons why you might not want to join Charlotte Chapel. Let's face it. It is far from a perfect church. There are plenty of good reasons to join. But if for some doctrinal or relational reason or something like that, you feel like it's not the family I really want to be a part of, then let us exercise our care of you and help you to find one that you will love to join and where you can flourish and be blessed and be a blessing in all the ways that we've outlined here as a member of the body of Christ who honors its head and the members. Now, I've zeroed in on just one New Testament metaphor for the church to answer this question, why join a church? I haven't gone into some of the key passages in the New Testament that clearly imply a known membership of a local church, like Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, passages where local church, uh, the local church is given instructions regarding discipline of members who are defined as being those who are inside and outside. I haven't even looked at Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, which identifies the people who should not forsake meeting with, and an eldership, chapter 13, that we shouldn't, uh, and an eldership that we should submit to. I've barely mentioned any of the 50 or more one another passages in the scriptures, which you may be very happy about. That would have been a very long sermon. This is a long sermon. But apply a known membership in which we obey those instructions. Now, I've simply sought to communicate imperfectly through the biblical metaphor of the body that we should be a part of a local church to honor Christ as the head of the body and to honor his body as a member of it. It's not every man for himself. It is knit together as one. Let's pray. Our Father, your word tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And as your local church here, the people gathered at Charlotte Chapel, we give you thanks and praise that you have made this love known to us and that we've responded in repentance and faith. What a joy. Thank you. Help us to be the people you would have us be. For we know that it not only... Uh, ref we are not only a reflection of who you are to the world, but we are, even through our love, the means by which the world can get to know you and your love. May we be a mirror that reflects your glory to them and that through us they see you. And help us to be this church that you would have us be in and of ourselves, loving one another deeply. 
from the heart in all the ways that your word prescribes. We ask it with requiring the help of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's close our service. Let's stand and sing together.